I've been um, thinking today about the way that Buddhism understands human life and how much it values human life and appreciates human life. And that this appreciation of this value is mostly summed up in a phrase that one hears over and over again in Buddhist practice, which is precious human life, precious human life. And it's precious in a number of different ways. The fact that it's life itself makes it precious. And in that sense, all life is precious. That, that Buddhism values life itself. It values uh, sentient life. It values the life of consciousness or um, the forms that consciousness takes, whether it be a human form or the form of an ant or a cockroach or a lion or a snake or an eagle or a pigeon. All the forms that life takes are valued. And really, it's, it's even greater than that. I mean, it's, there's a lot of focus on sentient life and, and the value of that. But even the, the, the life of the world, the life of the oceans, the life of the land, the life of the air is valued partly because of the understanding of our interconnectedness. That without the air, we don't survive. Without the land, we don't survive. Without the waters, we don't survive. That it's all interconnected. Life itself is a web. There's a web of life. Living, breathing, alive, rising, passing, coming and going, being born and dying. This great, beautiful mystery of being alive. And so life is valued Sentient life is valued quite a bit. The life of consciousness is valued. And then human life is valued. And there is, there is some hierarchy. It's not hierarchy that one's better than the other in a right or wrong way. But there is a value, uh, an appreciation for the development of human life and the possibility of human life, that what's possible for us as human beings, the capacities that we seem to have as human beings offer us, offer a certain possibility for the world. And the possibility is for awakening to come into the world, for awakening to be realized in the world. And so one of the values of being a human being is the value of um, the rising of a Buddha or a Bodhisattva. And the Buddha, the historical Buddha, came as a human being, emerged in the world as a human being, brought his, the teaching of the Buddha and the Dharma as a human being. And it said he taught beings in all realms not just in the human realm, but the form he took, the shape he took, is our form, is our shape. And it's an a indication of our possibility, of the possibility of our maturity, of our development.
of our realization, of our understanding. And in the mythology of Buddhism, there are actually many Buddhas. The Buddha who preceded Gautama Buddha was uh, Dipenkara Buddha. And then there was a Buddha before that, a Buddha before that, at different eras, different uh, eras, not the right word, different eons of time in the mythology of the Buddhist texts. And they were different people and they taught in different ways and they re their realization was different. And then the, the bodhisattvas or the other enlightened beings who uh, populate the cosmology of Buddhism, like Kuan Yin, who's the bodhisattva of compassion, um, teaches in, in a whole nother way. And the teaching is all about compassion. And partly what this points to is not just the value of life and the value of human life, but the value of the uniqueness of each being. That each being is unique. Each being is uh, can't be repeated. And I'm talking about each being sitting here, each of us. And there's a certain value of the uniqueness of what in more modern terminology we might even call diversity. There's a valuing of the diversity of how life presents itself and how each person, and all you have to do is look around to see the diversity, the uniqueness of each being. And that uniqueness is valued. There's a beautiful poem from Dogen. He says, the true person, and the true person is the uh, true person meaning what's real in us, what's authentic in us. He says, the true person is not anyone in particular, but like the deep blue color of the limitless sky, it is everyone everywhere in the world. The true person, the true person is not anyone in particular, but like the deep blue color of the limitless sky, it is everyone, everywhere in the world. And so there's this value and appreciation of the arising of life and the way life takes manifest forms and then the human form itself and the value of that, of the uniqueness of each person, of each being, of each man, of each woman, of how life expresses itself and the possibility for that life to be realized and to be realized in a unique way, in a slightly different way in each person. We, we kind of have the idea, the image of the Buddha, right? And some of you can see, it's, we don't have a big Buddha here, but we have a small Buddha. And, you know, it kind of looks like, oh, if we're going to be a Buddha, we're going to look like that. Not going to work that way. If you're going to be a Buddha, you're going to look like yourself even more. Even more yourself, not less yourself.
And so there's this preciousness, this precious human life. And one more. Hmm. Somewhere. And partly I was thinking about this because I was reading an article um, by Robert Aiken. Robert Aiken may be the senior Western Zen teacher alive in the world. He's, he turned 90. And so he gave a teaching on turning 90. And he began practicing at least 50, 60 years ago now. Maybe more. He was a prisoner of war. I can't do the math that quickly. 65 years ago? 70 years ago? Could it have been that long? Could he have been 20? I guess he could have been 20. And when he started practicing in a prisoner of war camp in, in Japan, he was interned either in Japan or one of the countries they had occupied. And he became a Zen student and Zen master and teacher and he's taught forever and very active in engaged Buddhism, very quite a force. I believe he started the Buddhist Peace Fellowship or was one of the founders. And so he's writing about being 90 and he's, one of the things he says, oh, I suppose you hope for words of wisdom. He says, sorry. <laughs> So you know he's really wise when he says that. <laughs> he says, the most, obvious ob- the most obvious observation I can make is the gap between what we know and what we do. Between what we know and how we act. He says, we know that we come into being, hang out for a while, and then go out of being. Nothing survives. Rupert Murdoch will not survive. (laughs) Bill Gates will not survive. Their organizations and institutions will not survive. You and I and everything we value are completely ephemeral. You and I and everything we value are completely ephemeral. Do we act as though we know this? We know it's true. We know it's all ephemeral. But do we act as though we know this? I'm, re- I'm reminded of another Zen story, uh, Katagiri Roshi. Katagiri Roshi was a senior disciple of Suzuki Roshi who founded the San Francisco Zen Center. And Katagiri um, then moved on to Minnesota, founded the Minnesota Zen Center, which quickly grew. And the story is that um, they were, I guess, looking to buy a center. They bought a center and were trying to fix it up. And so they had this fundraiser dinner with their, their major donors. They invited the major money people. And, you know, which is what you do if you're raising money. And, and then Katagiri was to come down and at the dinner and give a talk. And he wasn't so sophisticated about fundraising. And so he came down to give his talk and he was like giving the pure Zen teaching. And he looked at the people sitting around having their meal. He said, you're all going to (laughs) die. And they looked at him and he said, you're all going to die. That was basically his talk that night. (laughs) 
She says, I don't know how much money he raised. <laughs> but it's one of the major teachings in Buddhism. And major, um, it's such an interesting, uh, not a contradiction. There's an interesting juxtaposition between how valued life is and how valued death is. That they're both valued. And in fact, if you read in Zen, you'll be reading um, birth and death. And it's always hyphenated because they're connected. Because you can't actually separate out life and death. So to separate out one would be to devalue both, actually. And partly I've been drawn to talk about this a little tonight because um, somebody in my family died today, an aunt of mine, really beloved aunt of mine, who was a little like a second mother to me. And she'd lived a long life. She was probably about Aiken Roshi's uh, age. She was 90, 89 or 90. And, um, and I knew she was going to die. I saw her earlier this year, and it was just clear. And this, you know, I, I would have been amazed if she lived out the year. Um, but I'm still amazed she died. Because as much as we know that we're all going to die, it's still shocking somewhere in the psyche somewhere and maybe it's in the body maybe it's in the most primitive parts of us where survival is all that matters in that reptilian brain of ours that we have and what's sometimes referred to in some circles as the animal soul or the instinctual part of us as human beings the animal of us that just really wants to survive at all costs but I really also appreciate the practice that I've been given to be with death, to be with that people die, that my aunt who I love died today. And so I thought I would talk a little both about the appreciation and the preciousness and the truth of we're all going to die. And in the Buddha said, he said, of all the footprints in the jungle, that of the elephant is supreme. Of all the mindfulness meditations, mindfulness of death is supreme. So again, you hear the value of death. And it's not a morbid value. It's not a value of death in some kind of glorification of dying. But it's an appreciation of our temporality. It's an appreciation of the temporality of all things, of all beings, of all people, of all corporations, of all institutions, of all governments. We may not live to see, you know, Microsoft end or whatever, you know, whatever it might be, whatever the corporation or business or... But but they'll all end. Everything is temporary. And the reason death becomes valued is because it begins to inform us. It begins to offer us a perspective that is considered a valued perspective to examine our life, examine our actions, 
examine our desires, examine our goals, examine our values, and see how do we want to live. And this is not not even, it's not like this is unique to Buddhism. You know, Don Juan, the, the uh, native Mexican shaman, you know, he said, always keep death on your left shoulder because someday death will make its gesture towards you. And if you keep it at, on your left shoulder, then it can really help you learn how to live. Learn how to live life very fully, very completely. And we want that. We want to learn how to live. Diane Ackerman said, she said, one can live life at a low flame. One could live life at a low flame. Most people do. For some, life is an exercise in moderation. And then she says, like, best china saved for special occasions. But given something like death, what does it matter if one looks foolish now and then, or tries too hard, or cares too deeply? Given something like death, why not take some risks in life? Why not go for it? Whatever the it is, what do you want? What's important to you? What do you care about? What do you value? And what would it mean to give yourself to the deepest value, the, your deepest love, one's deepest, what one cares about the deepest, whether it's politics or the environment or your family or whatever it might be, riding from Spirit Rock to Baigiri. or to the Dharma and to awakening, if that's what you value, if that's what's important. And so there's this mystery that we all grapple with of birth and death, birth and death. When you go to Zen Center and they ring the, the Han, which calls people to the meditation center, to the meditation hall. Is, I don't know if this is at every Zen center, but in Zen center in San Francisco, it says, great is the matter of birth hyphen and hyphen death. Great is the matter of birth and death. Life passes quickly and is swiftly lost. Awaken, awaken. Do not waste your life. And then again, it winds us back to the preciousness of our time here. And then so it's precious because it's life itself. It's precious because of the possibility of our life and the capacities we're given as human beings. And it's precious because it's so short. You know, I talked to my two brothers today who are both older than I am and uh, about our aunt, you know, kind of grieving together a little this afternoon and remembering her and, and my middle brother who, 
you know, he just said, oh, who, who you know, he, he was just like, oh, it's all so fleeting, it's so fleeting. And it is, it's very fleeting. And we don't know that. Usually it takes us a while to get that. It's a little harder at first. I mean, you know, we definitely don't get it so much when we're eight or 10 or 12 so much. But a little later, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, you're starting to really get it. <laughs> 50, you really get it. You know, maybe by 45, 50, some people start to read the obituaries, see how many people their age, right? It's an interesting practice. I have to admit it's one of my practices. <laughs> <laughs> No, I like to look at the and I like to see, oh, who's my age? And what happened to them? What, what did they do? What was their life? And there's a certain kind of, okay, that's interesting. You know, I'm still here, but I might not be. We don't know. We really don't know. And we know we don't know, but we don't really act as if we don't know, which is what Aiken Roshi was pointing us at. Hmm. He talks about a number of things, and he talks about the challenges. He said we're we're led to another thing that we know and easily forget: the infinitely precious quality of each individual being and thing. The infinitely precious quality of each being and thing. And the Dharma can lead us to seeing this, to knowing this. And deeper and deeper levels. A deeper and deeper sense of appreciation for this moment, for our time here, for the uniqueness of each being here, the difference, the beauty of people, the goodness, really, of people. My daughter, who's preparing to play a lead, the lead role in the Diary of Anne Frank in, in the Denver Performing Arts Center. So we were talking about it and I, I saw, oh, Anne Frank, at the end of her life, she wrote, I, I believe in the goodness of humans. I, you know, they couldn't, couldn't even scare it out of her, given the tragedy and the, and the difficulty of her life. I, I can't help, she said something like, I can't help but see the goodness in human beings or believe in the goodness of human beings. And it's really true if you really look. I know the world's a mess, you know, but we don't have to pretend it's not or anything. But if you look at most human beings, they're good. They're doing what they can, they do their jobs. They're trying to take care of their families. They care about their communities. So this contemplation of birth and death, birth and death, birth and death, contemplation of our lives, provides us as a, with a ground to see, well, what do we want to do with this life that is temporary, that is temporal, that won't last actually too much longer? 
a while, you know, 50 years, 70 years, 80 years at most for maybe the youngest people here. My, uh, my Tibetan teacher, he said, people don't understand time. He said, only when they're about to die do they understand time. And then he said, he said, it's like this. That's what time is. It's just now. It's just a moment. It's only when we're about to die that we really understand what time is. So there's this appreciation, this preciousness of both birth and death, and there's the consequences or the reality of birth and death, which is loss. And sometimes people have an idealized vision or view or imagining of what will happen if we practice and awaken that there will be no no problems basically that's the that's often the idea right you practice you sit you really do it and you get enlightened and everything's fine no problem retired enlightenment it's called <laughs> right you get to retire then might not exactly be the way it is might be a little different than that I love the stories in the Buddhist canon where the Buddha gets fed up with his monks because they're arguing and he, he goes to mediate between the two sides versus just two monks who are arguing. He's kind of mediating and it's not working so well and then other monks are taking sides and he's trying to mediate it just doesn't work at all. And finally he says, I'm going, I'm going to the forest to be with the animals. They're much better to be with than, than people. It's good to see the Buddha get a little frustrated now and again. <laughs> so, with death, with temporality, with the fact that nothing, it's not just that none of us will survive, nothing survives. How many people live in the neighborhood they grew up in? This is definitely a San Francisco crowd. One person. Two. Three. Okay. Wow, we got a lot. <laughs> Where is that world that you grew up in? That we all grew up in? You know, where are those people? So here's this, I'm being definitely self-revealing today. So I'm also talking to my cousin whose mother it is who died, right? I called up my cousins and, um, and my cousin said, oh, Jerry's here, your old friend Jerry from elementary school, who I haven't talked to in <laughs> a long time, right? Like seventh grade, probably. And I said, oh, put him on. <laughs> you know, and, and Jerry got on the phone. And so I'm like, hi, how are you? And what happened? And, you know, and he, I said, oh, did you take over your father's plumbing business? And he said, no, no, I, became, I went into medicine. I became a doctor. He's an obstetrician, pediatrician. He delivers babies. I said, oh, that's great. He said, what do you do? He said, oh, I, said, oh, I teach. 
He said, well, what do you, this is Detroit, right? And he said, what do you teach? I said, meditation. There's this silence, you know. <laughs> like I said, oh, I'm a kind of a Buddhist, you know, menace priest or something. And uh, you know, I, said, I said, I do a lot of teaching on psychology and, and, and spirituality. That makes it sound a little more substantial. <laughs> so... But, uh, but, you know, so I'm talking to Jerry, so I start asking him, oh, do you, is, do you ever see Marsha Klein? You know, I thought, like all these names start coming to me, people I haven't seen since the seventh grade. Uh, you know, worlds that we knew. Not only worlds that we knew, worlds that were beautiful or good or we enjoyed or nurtured us or we developed in or we lived in that we're our life, that we're as real as this world right now that we're sitting in. The world of San Francisco insight, Sunday night meditation, etc. And, and this world is as ephemeral as that world. This world is as ephemeral as that world. As junior high. Thank goodness. Right? That's good that junior high is ephemeral. So, and there's loss. There's missing, you know, Marsha Klein, who I had a big crush on when I was a kid. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> oh, God. I hope this, this won't go up on the web this time. <laughs> um, um, and, and so one of, the, one of the gifts of the Dharma is not that we're going to get away from the loss or that the loss then becomes blotted out by our concentration or our... but actually that we can practice with loss. That loss becomes a very natural part of the human experience. And the loss also teaches us. It teaches us to let go, but it doesn't teach us to let go like, oh, we've been bad grabbing the cookie and we have to let go. It doesn't, it's not teaching us, it's not exactly the pain of the loss that teaches us. It's the capacity to stay present that teaches us. And that we see that our hearts are sensitive in a certain way as human beings so that when we love, there's loss. And they're inseparable, the loss and the love. You can't have the love without the loss. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean we even have to hold on. It's just part of it. It's the, the loss of the sunsetting, you know, and it's gone. That beautiful sunset, whenever it was, right? That big sun setting into the water. And it just goes. And it'll never be here again in the same way. That uniqueness. Whether it's the sunset or the, you know, they, uh, this is the first bike pilgrimage I'm doing, but people have done six or seven, and they talk about how each pilgrimage has been unique and special and different because each moment is unique. Each moment is actually our whole life right now. 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 Our whole life is right now. 
And that's why time is just like that. You know, and sometimes there's some confusion in Buddhism. People think, oh, if, if you're free, then you're, there's, no, there's no grief when people die or, there's, or things change. And Ajahn Sumedho said it so well. Ajahn Sumedho, who's the senior Western monastic in our tradition, he's got to be close to 80 about, I would say, Ajahn Sumedho. Um, he said, and this was a number of years ago, about 10 years ago, I was, I was a staff teacher at Spirit Rock and I brought him in to talk to the staff and he was talking about what had been happening the last few years in his practice and he said how there had been a lot of loss and a lot of grief and uh, that his parents had died and his upachara had died, his benefactor in the holy life had died and friends had died and that he'd been grieving a lot. And he said, oh, people sometimes say to me, oh, you're a Buddhist monk, well, you, you don't grieve, or you're not supposed to grieve. And he said he would laugh. He would say, oh, this is a world of loss. Grief is an appropriate response. It's just the way the heart works. And the freedom is not that we don't grieve, but that we can grieve. And we can let the grief come and we can let the grief go. And of course, that was the kicker that Ajahn Sumedho uh, added when he was talking about this. He said, oh yeah, of course, a world of loss. It's a natural response is to grieve. And then very quietly he said, he said, of course, I'm not attached to my grief. That we can let it come and let it go. Just like we can watch thoughts come and go. Feelings come and go. Sounds come and go. The breath comes and goes. Each moment comes and goes. Tonight is going to come and go. Gone. Birth and death, right here, now. And we don't have to hold on to any of it. And we can allow all of it. The whole human experience is ours, is true. And we don't have to hold on to any of it. When Ryokan, the great Zen poet, he was in the last phase of his life, he had a beautiful platonic love affair with this younger nun named Teisho, Teishan, Teishan, actually probably correctly Taishan. And, um, and they would write poems to each other. It's, uh, if you want to read the beautiful little love affair, Platonic, which I'm pretty sure they were. Um, you can read their poems back and forth of their kind of courting and developing their friendship and their love and then the expression of it. And at the end, when he's dying, she said, she wrote, We monastics are said to overcome the realm of life and death, yet I cannot bear the sorrow of our parting. And that's how it is. And but... But so I want to be careful here because when she writes that, she is bearing it. And she writes it to express how deeply the heart gets touched, how much, how deeply we can love. 
and how deeply we can allow that love and the loss and the grief and the whole human experience to arise and appear and let go. And there is a wisdom that can come from opening to the totality of the human experience. As the, the great Zen uh, poet, woman, um, whose name I'm going to... Shikibu... Can't, I don't quite have her name in my mind, who wrote the poem basically that ends, No Part Left Out. That our practice is not to leave anything out. Birth hyphen and hyphen death and everything in between, it's all connected. It's all one thing. We're here, we're born, and this amazing unfoldment happens moment by moment by moment by moment by moment by moment. And it's true, we get stuck at places or we get lost at places, but when we really get present in a moment, it's right here. The whole thing is right here. There's nothing else. There's no future and no past. There's this moment, this life, this life that keeps living in each moment that we're alive. And who knows what happens at the end? You know that story about Socrates at the end when he, after he drank the poison, and, the, and he could feel the numbness come into his feet and then into his legs and his knees and thighs and. And they kept saying, how is it? And he kept saying, it's okay, I'm waiting to see. We'll see at the end. We'll see what happens. So another word or so about grief, just because sometimes people are really afraid of grief. They're afraid of grieving. And it's not that grief is easy, particularly. It can be very difficult. It's, it's like, uh, it's sometimes it's like getting caught in a, uh, a riptide or caught in a huge swell and being thrown totally upside down. You know, that's why uh, in, in, some, in traditional culture, they often rip a piece of cloth to, to symbolize the grief that reality has been uh, rended, I believe the word is. Rend? Rend. Ripped. Pardon? Pardon? Rent. R-E-N-T or D? T. Rent. Rent. Okay. Um, um, and it, it is hard at times. Even today I was watching my own resistance to the grief. And, you know, I've been a grief counselor and done grief groups and worked in death and dying. And I have some skills, but I still, I was watching my resistance to just landing right in the grief, in the sadness. And it wasn't even a huge sadness because, you know, this is like a normal life, right? This is like best case scenario. You live a life 90 years mostly. You know, it's not too bad of a life. And then one dies. But maybe until we're fully and completely awake, and even then, who knows, 
there's some way that death will push on our identity. It will push on how we've been concretizing reality, how we've been solidifying reality, how we haven't been living as if we see that each moment is ephemeral, that each moment is temporary, that each person is just an amazing appearance of reality that is only here for a while and then gone. And it's important not to take a talk like this, like, okay, I have to live every moment in the most precious way, or, you know, that just becomes an idea. But just to stay present for whatever life brings us, moment by moment, as best we can. And then to see how do we want to live our lives in the light of temporality. Let's see how to do this. just debating two different ways to go. So from the Dharma perspective, death informs us. Death gives us the opportunity to look carefully. And then to use the Dharma, or to let the Dharma inform us quite fully. And I'll end with Ajahn Chah who gave this teaching to a lay person, a woman who was dying, and he came and visited her. And he said, now determine in your mind to listen with respect to the Dharma. During the time I am speaking, be as attentive to my words as if it was the Buddha himself sitting in front of you. Today I have brought nothing material of any substance to offer you, only Dharma. Listen well. Understand that the Buddha himself, with his great store of accumulated virtue, could not avoid physical death. When he reached old age, he relinquished his body and its burden. This very lump of flesh that lies here in decline is called Sakadharma, the truth. The truth of the body is Saka Dharma, and it is the unchanging teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha taught us to look at the body, to contemplate it, and come to terms with its nature. The Buddha said that rich or poor, young or old, human or animal, no being in this world can maintain itself in any one state for long. Everything experiences change and estrangement. This is a fact of life that we can do nothing to remedy. But the Buddha said that what we can do is to contemplate the body and contemplate the mind and to see their impersonality. See that neither of them is me or mine. 
this truth doesn't apply to you alone. Everyone is in the same position, even the Buddha and his enlightened disciples. They differ from us in only one respect. That was in their acceptance of the way things are. They saw that it could be no other way. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.